So, uh, John, would you start with verse 29? Sure, sure. And read to 36. Okay. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place him, excuse me, place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You notice that he uh, uses a number of texts from the Old Testament mm-hmm. to support his case. Of course, the great discussion of Jerusalem and surrounding areas was, is, is Jesus the Messiah? Mm-hmm. Is he the Son of God? So what he's trying to do is explain how they got from crucifixion to the Holy Spirit being poured out. Mm-hmm. And the, what makes that for him is the resurrection of Jesus. The arguments are so um, compelling. It doesn't sound like somebody who was a fisherman could make them, you know. <laughs> I mean, like right there, that's the Holy Spirit speaking right. through him, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so um, is there any, are there any insights, and since our major theme that we've been looking at all these many years <laughs> has been the uh, salvation and the atonement, is there anything from these verses that would speak to that? Or is it just all about the resurrection? I would like to suggest that we have a tendency to narrow things down. Mm-hmm. And, our, and it's our attempt, I think, to simplify everything. We've tended to narrow salvation and the atonement down to Jesus' death. But you think about the term salvation and what it means in, in various settings. Uh, say you're at the beach and and you know that Goat Rock Beach is not the safest beach. Mm-hmm. You don't play in the water right. safely. Because uh, the waves come up against and then they pull you under. And there's kind of this deep chasm that you go into. Suppose somebody got caught in that, got pushed out to sea. What would it take to rescue them? To save them? Well, first somebody would have to call a lifeguard. Coast guard, I should say. And you can't go in the water because it's not safe for you either. Unless you manage to find a rope, a very strong rope. But even then, you know, the best that probably could happen is you start to go out and have to be pulled in. So you have to get, you have to do all these phone calls and all this help calling, Coast Guard, rescue units, uh, and what have you. And, and they have to maybe get a boat, and they have to uh, get 
ropes and and everything that they can find that would help them. And of course, they have to have all the equipment for resuscitation and and life saving techniques. So you have this much more not so simplistic perspective on salvation. So what I would like to propose to you is that both the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit all are part of our salvation. And we need to broaden that scope and say what role does the resurrection of Jesus play in our salvation? And that's something where most Adventists and most probably most evangelicals are just like moot. <laughs> mute, maybe is what I should say. They're mute because we don't discuss much the resurrection and how it has to, what role it has to play. Well, death is as um, amazing a story as it is that someone who wasn't culpable for anything would die for us. The story doesn't have a happy ending without the resurrection. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, I mean, for any of us. So... Um, if yeah. Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, yeah. would we be saved? No. I don't think so. Why? Because that, that was a sign of, of his victory over Satan. The fact that God he wouldn't have won the victory right, right. if he hadn't raised from the dead. How do yeah. we know that? I mean, that's an intuitive response. Yeah. And it's true. But how do we know that? It just establishes his lordship. He's even lord over death. There you go. Aren't we being saved, in a sense, from the second death? Yeah, yeah it's true. And if, uh -huh. if he can't be raised from the dead, neither can we. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And, and Paul, Paul really makes a lot of statements about that. You yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, if it weren't for the resurrection, we would all be kind of dismally lost. Uh -huh. so, so the resurrection from the dead means that he won the victory. Now, I think there's going to there's gonna be a lot more to that than we know. I think there's a lot more than has been revealed. In terms of uh, the very my understanding is that God did not raise Jesus. Actually, I think it, I think Peter does say that God yes God raised him up, having freed him from death. And I, and now we have to to say is is do we go with the Bible or do we go with Ellen White? Ellen White suggests that he had divinity in himself and that raised him to life. So so which ones do we go by? I I think they're both right. I think a lot of times we do binary oppositions between sacred texts and consequently put ourselves in a jam. But I think that um, if we could see a larger picture, you, you remember the puzzle of you know the dots and trying to connect them in one line, or is it two lines? So that you aren't going like this, you're going, and you have to go, what you have to do is create another dot in your mind. And you go to that dot, and then you can go two lines and connect them all. Right, right. So it's, it's getting outside the, the parameters and, and giving, giving more space. It's two things that looked in conflict aren't necessarily in conflict. Well, to me, it's, it's the evidence about the, the, the reality of the resurrection, just the fact that the same, the same ones that ran away from him when he was getting ready to die all came back and were willing to die themselves, and that would not have, not have happened unless that resurrection had occurred. That's right. That's right. So he became more than just a, a great teacher. They realized this guy is the Messiah. He is God. Right. He is God. Right. He has 
He ha and he has conquered death. Actually, I think Desire of Ages portrays the angel coming down and says, your father calls you. Jesus could not have responded to that call if he had not won the victory. If he had fallen short, if he, if he had distrusted God in any way, he would not have heard that call. So this is, this is evidence, this is proof that he did win the victory, that he, he trusted God to the end. And, I mean, there's just a whole, all the things that we've said above uh, are involved. Okay, let's move to 37. We're not going to read this whole rest of this chapter, just verses 37 to 39. Bev, you want to read them? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter could not have known how far off and all that would be until he had that vision of the sheath of the, of the beasts, unclean beasts. So when you come to this, our side of salvation, we've been talking mostly about God's side of salvation, that what he does to save us. Mm -hmm. What about repent and be baptized? Is that part of salvation? This is, this is where there's a lot of discussion. That's a great question because I, I think like the physical act of baptism is important. And of course I think it's also important to be mindful and be genuinely sorry when we make a mistake. But to me it's more like literally like changing our direction where rather than living for ourselves, we're living for something greater than ourselves. You know, when we become baptized, we're part of something that's bigger than we could ever be. And so I think that's the more important element. You know, I can yeah. get dropped in a tank, but if I have really consciously changed and then die daily to try to live that life as opposed to the life I was in. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if we had lived back then, if maybe we, there would have been a, a more experiential appreciation of baptism than we have now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's we've made baptism our conditional right to be a member of the Adventist Church, and that isn't what it meant. Mm -hmm. That isn't what it's supposed to mean. Well, you know, my big thing too, and Bernice and I have had discussions about this. When somebody says, I love Jesus, I'm going to follow him the rest of my life, to me that meets the condition of baptism. I don't need to tell them the 28 fundamental. It's one thing to be a Christian, and it's another thing to be a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So in other words, like, like it's like the eunuch. You know, mm -hmm. like if, if you told that story, like, I want to be part of this, and you don't know all the details, but you know that that's something. To me, that's enough. Like, And then, like, okay, like we're going to baptize you, and now we're going to go through teachings where you can learn the Seventh-day Adventist teachings and then you can choose we know you love jesus we can choose whether to become a member of our church or not or just continue to be a christian so i don't know I, I, that's maybe i'm wrong but that's how i feel yeah i've i've wrestled with that uh, myself and i i tend to go with where the church has historically gone with that but i'm very conscious 
that it is not the 28 fundamental beliefs that determine your Christianity. 28 fundamental beliefs are helpful, I think, in understanding God and His ways and, and in, in pursuing a walk with God. And I usually start with God and knowing Him and, and that whole plan of salvation and emphasize that. Uh, maybe a little more than the, than the rest of the beliefs. But um, I'm thinking just the rite of baptism itself. That to to Peter and, and the apostles and everyone, that baptism took on new meaning with Jesus' death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It meant being buried with him. It meant that just as Jesus died because of sin and, and for our sins, and rose again. So we experience that death in a different way. We Good. die to sin. Good point. And, and we are raised to life. And I think the most meaningful baptism I ever saw was done by Ginger Hanks Harwood when she taught here at PUC quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. She did a baptism in the PUC church. And I guess I must have been sitting near the front that Sabbath. And I watched her lower the person in the water, and then she didn't just do this. She lowered them in, paused, and then slowly, slowly lifted them out of the water. I can't do that. I have a bad back. <laughs> well, I'd be afraid that the person would drown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, you've before. Yeah, yeah. She didn't do it as slowly as I. I exaggerated the slowness. Yeah, yeah. But but she lifted them out slowly enough that you could see the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the symbolism of the resurrection. Yeah. And it was a very powerful I bet. expression. I, I do not like baptisms where we dunk. <laughs> right. Yes, I've seen that one, yeah. Um, I don't like that. Um, and I know why they do it, but but to me it spoils the whole imagery of what's being accomplished. So what I think baptism represents is maybe the perception there is no salvation without the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Why is that true? Yeah, I just don't know how, you know, like... If if he hadn't committed that act, it would have basically some, such a selfless act. It, it would have almost validated some of the devil's art advocates is like, hey, it's, you know, God just using his authority as opposed to sacrificing, you know, anything for you or whatever. So I, um, it was a great act of humility and, and love. I think I think that's a, about half of the perspective. It's a very important half. And it, it, it leads to the other half, actually. Uh, this, this concept that what, when you want to fix something, you want to save someone from something, you have to deal with what caused them to be lost in the first place. And what caused us to be lost in the first place was believing Satan's lies about God. So Jesus' death had to deal with all of those lies, and one of those lies is that God is a selfish God, and he's arbitrary, and he's authoritarian, and, and so on. Uh, Jesus' death proves that. That is false. That is absolutely false. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think without, without Jesus' death, I don't think uh, most of us would be moved to repentance. We would never repent. Yeah, because there's no assurance. 
There's, and and because why change our mind about something called selfishness when God is selfish? The other piece of that is that one of the biggest lies that Satan got us to stumble over was you will not surely die. Sin will not kill you. Sin will not hurt you. Mm-hmm. And if and then when when God tried to make that clear through the sacrificial system, he Satan twisted that, mm-hmm. saying, Oh yeah, so you'll die, but God is gonna be the one who hurts you. God is the one who kills you. God mm-hmm. is the one who does the damage. It's not sin. Sin is not the problem. God is. And that has twisted the whole view of Jesus' death. So, when with Jesus' death, who else but God could really prove true that sin leads to death? Only if someone who, who is the God incarnate, who has revealed the love of God, who has never fallen, who has never, never sinned, could really make it clear that sin is what leads to death. Because Jesus, the weight of the of sins came upon him, or as Paul puts it, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I think that repentance and, and the death of Jesus are very intimately tied, and that's why repentance and baptism, which is the symbolic death, symbolically dying with Christ, is is an important part of that. And I think if we could emphasize that more instead of 28. See, I'm more concerned about little kids 10 years old understanding that yeah. and understanding How are the they going to understand that? Yeah. And understand um, the 28 fundamentals. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're done with that chapter. Interesting. And you notice what happens now within the the concept of salvation they go out and they do all these wonderful works, raising, um, healing people, raising them from the dead, chapter after chapter. Let's go to 312. I mean, they, it was very evident that they really believed in what they're doing. You know, I mean, and some witnessed it with their own eyes. I mean, there's a fervor. Well, there's this very experiential element here, isn't there? Right, right. Uh, which is, we have put this in stained glass for so long we've lost the experience we we are detached really from the experience that the apostles had well you know not these millennials these kids that we've got here that's what they want is the experience mm-hmm. they could care they couldn't care much about having a sermon on sabbath but they a lot of them even the ones that aren't really close to jesus they do want to help other people mm-hmm. they want to lift a burden they want to help the homeless or feed them or mm-hmm. whatever and, that's and who who has made them want that? I mean, isn't that the Holy Spirit working on their I hearts? I think so too. And, and doesn't that suggest that maybe they're closer to the kingdom than a lot of people who sit in the yeah. pews every Sabbath? Yeah, I think so too. Now let's let's go to chapter three, verse twelve. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, "You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? This is after the healing of the the man who was crippled." Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of, your, of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he decided to release him. 
But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Mm-hmm. And by faith in this, his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him the perfect health in the presence of all of you. Amen. So if we're there hearing this, and we have witnessed the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion, what's going through our minds? This may not be the answer you're looking for, but I, I think if I were in that crowd, I would have been incredul- incredulous that somebody like Barabbas could be released, and this guy that like healed people, and you know, you want to kill him. I, 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 where's the justice? So, um, let's talk about that because what would lo- what would allow religious people? Yeah. People who pride themselves on being righteous. Right. What would what would uh, what justification would they bring to the table? The only thing I can think of is is fear that Jesus <coughs> in his purity could undermine their authority. I, I mean, and and then of course people that respected them, you know, would kind of just like, oh, okay, well, Elder so and so, you know, from the Sanhedrin doesn't wants him put to death. So I better agree with him. <laughs> Yeah, um, is there anything in their religion that would justify that? Sacrificial system? It is better that one man die for the nation. This is human sacrifice. Um, Let me go ahead and say this here. It works better in Revelation, but it works here too. When Caiaphas said that, Zarabages suggests that he was borrowing from the principle of heathenism that allowed for human sacrifice. And I believe that. I believe that they saw the need to treat Jesus as what a Babylonian would call a sharpuki. Uh, A sharpuki was a substitute king who, when the omens predicted or forecasted that the king would be annihilated by the gods, usually through armies. This was mostly known in the Assyrians. Uh, We don't have as many Babylonian records to draw from, but that's because we don't have very many Babylonian records, Mm -hmm. or at least as many as we have Assyrian records. But we know that it was practiced in the time of Alexander Mm -hmm. the Great because they wanted to do it on his behalf. So, so the king is supposed to die. He's, the gods are angry with him. The omens all forecast this. And so they get a substitute king who reigns on the throne X many days, sometimes as high as 100. The real king, meanwhile, goes uh, someplace else uh, and stays there, and it's not clear whether he functions as a king or not. At the end of the stated period of time, they have a banquet, reinstate the real king, and take the substitute king and his wife out and execute them. Because legally, this is a legal ritual, legally, gods who are angry with the king, we, we, gave, we sacrificed the king. 
the king did die. That's the ritual they're, they're probably drawing from. Because there's a lot of Babylonian influence in Judaism by the time of Christ. So, this is, this is human sacrifice. So the sacrificial system is one piece of what would allow them to crucify Jesus. Are there any other pieces? Is it possible that they believe so strongly that Jesus' goodness is satanic? Remember, he casts out demons mm -hmm. by the prince of demons, they tell him. They believe it's so satanic. They have so starved themselves of the love of God that that love has to be satanic. That they're able to crucify Christ. Mm -hmm. And a criminal is more righteous in their eyes than someone who heals the sick. Wow. Is it possible that people in their religiosity can become so counter to truth. And I, I must confess, I see this struggle in the church. I was um, teaching the class Christian Ethics and Society last autumn. Hadn't taught it for years and decided to resurrect it and re completely change it different, do it differently. And I raised the question, I don't remember, it was early in the quarter, about why the church is so reticent to accept what some people call social gospel. You know, dealing with the disenfranchised, the, the marginalized, the, the downtrodden, deal with thing, issues like racism like, uh, and so on. <clears throat> you have a whole, whole long list of ills in our society. There's a segment of the church that wants solely to do that and kind of get rid of eschatology. You know, last day events aren't as important as here and now. Um, let's do here and now. And then there's another segment of the church who cling to the eschatology and say, that's social gospel, liberalism, get rid of it. And, and historically, it's been that way throughout Christianity. Only the Roman Catholics seem to be able to do mo both, and they kind of shun eschatology a lot. Mm -hmm. I was saying to the, to the class, why can't we get those two together? Why do they have to be an antithesis to each other? And a student raised his hand, as known for his conservatism, and he said something to the effect, and I'm probably not quoting him exactly, something to the effect that, well, we know that the people we would be trying to help are someday going to be our persecutors. What? And I remember, I remember standing there and going, that's very interesting, <laughs> you know, because that was not the answer I was expecting at all. Yeah, they, those folks have been persecuted their whole lives. They, they, don't, they don't think like persecutors. So. I don't know if he meant the people who are doing social gospel, if that's, they're going to be our persecutors. But it was, it was almost as if our religion is something that we have for ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's up to us to protect ourselves. Yeah. And that's exactly where the Jews are. If they let Jesus continue to go, 
the Romans are going to get him. And they're going to get the whole nation with him. He's going to bring the whole nation down into the hands of the Romans. And so we've got to protect ourselves. Well, I've always been bothered by this whole kind of zip code spirituality where somehow or another, just because I got was born in the West in the United States where it's so free, you know, that somehow or another God loves me more and I have a better chance of being saved than some poor little child that was born in sub-Saharan Africa that will never hear the word of Je name of Jesus, you know. The God I love is fairer than that, mm -hmm. and and I'm not I'm not trying to be flippant. But these little ones that have suffered their whole life, I'd be okay with not going if it meant one of those that have just suffered got to go. And I trust I trust God in His justice, you know, or whatever. But I, but this whole idea, oh, well, they didn't proclaim the name, name of Jesus. Yeah. Like, they've suffered their whole life, like you know. So. Um, Anyway, I just can't, I'm just counting on him to be the great equalizer, you know. Well, I'm, I'm with you there. But I'm, I'm trying to understand what led them to accept Barabbas yeah, yeah, over Jesus. Yeah. And, and for me, I feel like we're on dangerous ground as a church yeah. and, and treading towards the same direction. Well, one of the things, choosing, at least for the leaders, is they could control Barabbas. They could not control Jesus. That's true. Mm -hmm. And and we're talking definitely about power and control versus mm -hmm. character. Yeah. And certainly, and, and you know, I have known of people, strict Adventists, who are afraid of the term ethics. You know, it's, it's a scary word. They don't get it that we can't just do anything in the name of Jesus and be righteous. That it's not a power struggle, it's a character struggle. And that Jesus' love trumps everything. So, I have one more thing I want to say about this and then we need to close. How appropriate is it that Paul, uh, that Peter addresses them on the plan of salvation and indicts them for handing Jesus over and crucifying him? He really lays them out in the context of healing someone. Is that not the gospel? Isn't the gospel about making people whole? Isn't the love of Jesus supposed to make us spiritually whole? And to me, uh, that's something we, we didn't talk a lot about in going through the Gospels. But every act of healing for Jesus was an illustration of what he came to do for us and our souls. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and so to me, that's the experience we need right there. Well, I think for someone like, like, like Adventists or, or, or Jews or whatever like that, <coughs> sometimes we're so um, confident you know, or you know, in in um, our spiritual knowledge, that we've got to get slapped upside the head. So, so I think that's why he did it. It, it, it was like mm -hmm. a wake up call. Mm -hmm. So, where someone how can you know, how can they come to repentance if they're not aware? Right, you did wrong here. Right, right, right. So, I, I, so I get why why. He did and it. I I need this in scripture yeah. because there are Adventists now interpreting all prophecies as this is God's will. He wanted this. So if there's a prophecy that says 
um, the Jews are going to kill Jesus, that's God's will. Right. And, and yes, in a sense, a larger sense, it is his will because it's part of the plan of salvation. It wasn't his will that they be the ones to put him to death. Because they actually muddied the water. It, it looks like Jesus needed execution in order to forgive us our sins. Instead of dying a causal death that was caused by sin itself. Uh, so by putting him to death, the Jews actually uh, made it more difficult for God to make that clear. And it wasn't his ultimate will. He wanted them to accept Jesus. Not reject him. What's interesting, it's a God with perfect foreknowledge, but he's also a God that it's gives very us free flexible. will. And so, like, you know, when you hear these prophecies, how much of it is his will, his his desire versus like his knowledge of what's going to happen and then finding ways to kind of to deal with make it. sense out of it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the latter. That's why I, I uh, have developed a canonical critical reading of the Bible that has two voices. The voice of God's preferred will and the yeah. voice of his will adapted to the will of the people. Right, right. Yeah, well, we need to stop. Interesting. So, let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for the witnesses that you have in Scripture to the death and resurrection of Jesus and to all that we can learn from Acts about your will, and about your ways. We pray that we may continue to learn more as we press on. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.